Good morning, everyone. Good to have you all with us today. There is a handout coming around. If you do not have a copy of the handout, please just raise your hands and Bob will bring that around. Um, for those of you who are expecting Father Chris Garada, I'm very sorry. <laughs> for those of you who are expecting Dr. Tim Smith, I am also very sorry. <laughs> I am neither of those individuals. I sometimes play them on TV, but I'm Father Andrew Grosso and I'm the Senior Associate for Worship and Discipleship here at St. Michael. And because Chris is out of town and Tim is unfortunately under the weather, um, I'm afraid you are stuck with me today. But I'm glad to be with you. Um, I'm going to start with uh, just a few bits of housekeeping before we uh, look at the lesson for today. Wanted to remind you that this is the last Rector's Bible study that we will have until the 10th of January. So this is the last time that we will meet until January 10th. Take the rest of the year off. You've been great. So no class on the 20th, no class on the 27th, and then no class on the 3rd. Classes resume, the, the Bible study resumes on the 10th. The bookmark for the spring season is currently available online. It will be physically available in early January sometime. We'll probably have it out at the reception center and certainly make it available in here. But if you're looking for the bookmark, you can go online and get it now. Um, that, that'll be physically available uh, in just another couple of weeks. Couple of reminders regarding the service schedule for Christmas Eve, for Christmas Day, and then uh, immediately thereafter. We've got uh, Christmas lessons and carols this coming Sunday. The 17th is the third Sunday of Advent, so we have our regular morning schedule and then Christmas lessons and carols at four o'clock. Always a beautiful service, promises to be a great one this year. So please feel free to come and avail yourself of that. And remember that that is only the second in the three-part series of the Lessons and Carols services that we have. We do Advent Lessons and Carols, Christmas Lessons and Carols, and then in January we'll do Epiphany Lessons and Carols. And those three services combined help you kind of track the, track the season. Question about that? The question was, will there be incense at Lessons and Carols? The answer is yes, there will be. The, incense, the, use of the, inc the use of the incense will be restricted to the high altar. So if you're next to the high altar, then it'll be right there. Um, it will also be streamed online. Uh, in addition to the Lessons and Carols service, then we have our Christmas Eve services. We will have an Advent 4 service at 9 o'clock on December 24th. So we will observe the fourth Sunday of Advent at 9 o'clock. We'll have one service for that observance in this space, in the chapel, and then we will immediately shift to our observance of Christmas Eve. We'll have our 11 o'clock joy service in the main sanctuary. We'll have our one o'clock jazz service in the main sanctuary. We'll have three services at three o'clock, three services at five o'clock, and then our 1030 service in the main sanctuary. All of that is on Sunday the 24th. We'll have one service on Christmas Day, uh, 10 o'clock in St. Michael Chapel. Uh, so there will be a service here on Christmas Day. The, the, re the, the building will be closed that day except for that service. Um, so offices will be closed and everything else will be shut down. But we will gather uh, to worship on that particular day. The following Sunday, the 31st, there will be a reduced service schedule on Sunday morning. We'll only have two services. We'll have a 9 o'clock traditional service in the main sanctuary. And we'll have an 11 o'clock contemporary service also in the main sanctuary. So the 7.30 service, the 5.30 service, um, the extra joy service, the contemporary service in, in the parish hall, none of that will happen. Just two services on the 31st, traditional at 9 and contemporary at 11, both in the main sanctuary. And then at, after that, from that Sunday on, 
the contemporary service is going to shift from being in the parish hall to being upstairs. So during a regular Sunday, uh, after uh, January 10th, basically going forward, we'll have uh, two services at 11 o'clock. One will be a traditional service. The traditional service will be held here in St. Michael Chapel, and the contemporary service will be held uh, in the main sanctuary. And this, of course, is to accommodate the loss of the parish, the, the parish hall now that we're entering the time of construction. You probably saw the, the temporary walls uh, over there in the, in, the, in the hallway coming in off the parking lot. That's an exciting sign that our construction has officially begun. Um, so we're starting to roll into that next phase of our life together and signs of that are, are beginning to appear around campus. Any questions about calendar issues, service times, all of that good stuff? Okay, all that information is available on the website. So if I rattled that off pretty quickly, but if you've got questions about what we're gonna do on Christmas Eve, what we're gonna do on the 31st, what we're gonna do in January, just go and check that out and that's all there. Wanted to spend a few minutes talking about a question that came in over the course of the week uh, via email. Someone wrote in and asked this question in relation to something you talked about last week. You remember at the beginning of chapter eight in John, there's that scene that we think was interpolated in which Jesus is engaged in a conversation with some people who bring before him a woman caught in the act of adultery. That, that's, a, that's a story you looked at last week. Somebody wrote in and said, Jesus beautifully forgives the woman and tells her he does not condemn her. She is probably not a follower and he has not yet been crucified and resurrected. So he is lovingly extending her grace despite the fact she has no faith. In other parts of the Bible, we learn about final judgment at the second coming. So my question is, will there be grace in God's judgment? Maybe even for non-believers or those who have not been exposed to Jesus. I wanna, uh, th this is a, a large question. Uh, I wanna handle it uh, as succinctly as I can by actually referring to something that C.S. Lewis had to say about this, this question in his book, Mere Christianity. Um, this is not the final word, this is not the only word, but I think Lewis kind of goes after that question in a way that is very helpful. So here's what Lewis has to say. He writes, here's another thing that used to puzzle me. So this is a question that Lewis himself was wrestling with. Is it not frightfully unfair that the gift of new life should be confined to people who have heard of Christ and have been able to believe in him? But the truth is that God has not told us what his arrangements are about those who have not heard of Christ. We do know that no one can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who have heard of Christ can be saved through him. In the meantime, if you are worried about those who have not heard of Christ, the most unreasonable thing you can do is to not tell them. Christians are Christ's body, the organism through which God works. Every addition to that body enables him to do more. If you want to help those outside, you must add your own little cell to the body of Christ who alone can help them. Cutting off one's fingers would be an odd way of getting one to do more work. <laughs> so you see the distinction that Lewis has made here. Uh, Lewis, Lewis suggests that it's perfectly reasonable for us to expect that God will save some people through Jesus even if they haven't heard of Jesus. And if you think about our own experience of the life of faith, this makes sense even for those who have heard of Jesus. I don't think any of us would want to lay claim to perfectly understanding or comprehensively understanding how it is exactly that God saves us through Jesus. We know that we ourselves are saved through, through faith in Christ. How does God do that? Well, 
we have some inklings of that. We have some sense of that. We do our best to try to understand that and to articulate that in part so that we can tell others about what we believe God has done through Christ. But we don't have a com comprehensive understanding of that. So even those who have heard of Christ can be saved through Christ without fully understanding what it is God is doing or how it is God is doing it. And Lewis suggests the same thing is true for those who have not heard of Christ. Will they be saved through Jesus? Can they be saved through Jesus? Of course. Do they have to have necessarily heard or understood how it is they're being saved? Well, Lewis said, maybe not. We don't know God's arrangements. In the meantime, get busy telling people about Jesus. So um, a, a short answer, a quick answer, uh, could be a much more fulsome conversation there, but I think that, that gives us at least a place to start. Before we uh, plunge into our text for today, are there any other questions that emerged for you in your reflections based on the conversation you had last week? Going once, going twice, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord God, we give you thanks for this time. We give you thanks for your presence in our midst through your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts and minds, make us attentive to your movement in our hearts, help draw us closer to you by drawing us closer through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to spend a little bit of time just doing some background and some context uh, to help kind of frame where we are in John's gospel. A lot of this, I expect, will be familiar to you. Um, I don't want to uh, belabor things that have been discussed earlier or kind of, you know, spend a lot of time going over ground that's already been covered. But I do think it's important to take a moment just to mark where we are in the gospel and kind of how we got here. Because as it happens, we're right in the middle of a conversation. Right? This is not the beginning of a new episode. We are smack in the middle of a discussion that started some time ago. So just by way of reminder, you, reminder, you will remember that John is described as a gospel of signs. Right? Chris has probably talked before about the many, the many ways in which the miracles function in John. Uh, I've, I've listed some of the uh, instances in, earlier in the gospel when signs are of particular relevance. Jesus changes water into wine at a wedding in Cana. Jesus heals a nobleman's son. Jesus heals someone by the pool of Bethesda. All of those and other instances like them are taken as signs that are indicators of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. So the role of signs is very important in John's gospel. Discourses, that second point that I've got there, discourses, conversations between Jesus and someone else are also very important in John's gospel. You've got a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. You've got an extended conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. You've got a conversation with some Jews about who is God's son. There's a, a series of discussions that happen throughout the gospel, all of which are intended to, again, frame the question, who is Jesus and how do we recognize uh, what it is he's telling us? And then we have this very cryptic series of what we call I am statements. Jesus will repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John refer to himself as something. I am the good shepherd. I am living water. I am the light of the world. Uh, and within the context of our lesson today, he says something very provocative indeed. He just says, before Abraham was, I am. Um, and we'll get to that a little, bit, a little bit later. But that series of I am statements is punctuated throughout the, the book. The signs are punctuated throughout the book and the discourses are punctuated throughout the book. All of those serve one overriding purpose. 
If you ever get lost in the Gospel of John, if you ever find yourself looking at any particular story or any particular text in the Gospel of John and you're wondering what's going on here, go right to that verse that I've listed there at the top of the outline, chapter 20, verse 31. That tells you everything you need to know about what the Gospel writer is doing. These things are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that through believing you may have life in his name. That is everything the gospel writer is doing all the time. These things are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that through believing you may have life in his name. So in some respects, all the conversations we have in John, all the discourses, all the signs, they're really something like object lessons, right? The gospel, the gospel writer basically puts before us a series of questions and a series of challenges that the disciples themselves would have had to work through in order to understand what Jesus was telling them about the kingdom, what Jesus was telling them about himself, and what Jesus was telling them about the life of faith. So John is almost kind of an instruction manual in how to be a disciple. And if you have a question about this, see this discourse. And if you have a question about that, see that discourse. And if you wonder who Jesus is, look at these signs. And if you're still not clear who Jesus is, listen to him as he speaks these words. Now, John can very much be read as, a, as, a, as itself kind of an extended device that is intended to bring people into a direct confrontation with the living Christ. Ultimately, the biggest sign in the Gospel of John, I mean, it's kind of obvious, what do you think? It's the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. That's the biggest, all the other signs are intended to serve that sign. And the most important discourse that happens probably in the Gospel of John is the ongoing, often unspoken, but nonetheless very real discourse that Jesus is having with his Father. Um, so all of that is to say that the whole Gospel, from the signs to the discourses to the I am statements, everything is intended to bring the reader, to bring the person who is encountering the Gospel itself into an awareness of the fact that Jesus is alive and is confronting them, confronting the reader with the exact same question and the exact same challenge that he puts before the people that he encounters in the gospel. Jesus puts a challenge in front of Nicodemus. Jesus puts a challenge in front of his disciples. Jesus puts a challenge in front of the Samaritan woman and the people that he heals and all those people. Jesus is putting that same challenge, says the gospel writer, in front of you. And what Jesus is inviting you to do is to believe that he is the Messiah so that for the purpose of making sure that you have life in his name. So all of that is, again, just context. I think it's helpful because the conversation that we're going to look at today, the particular text we're going to look at today, has everything to do with what I'm just talking about. Any questions about that before I move forward? Okay. Doing good. Then let me back up. I'm now uh, on the second bullet point on the outline. Just by way of quick review of where you've been most recently. The, I mentioned a few minutes ago that we're in the middle of a conversation. This conversation actually begins at the beginning of chapter 7. So we got to go back a little ways to kind of track where Jesus is and what he's doing. Jesus has come down from Galilee to Jerusalem to the festival of booths. You remember that there was that short discussion between he and his brothers. Beginning of chapter 7, his brothers say, hey, you should go to Judea you know, make a name for yourself down there. And initially Jesus is kind of playing coy and no, I'm not going to go. It's not my time. And then later on he, he goes uh, after all. 
and the people at the festival are looking for him and no one's sure if he's going to show up. There's a sense of anticipation. Something might happen if he arrives. What's going to happen? What's he going to say? What's he going to do? What are the authorities saying about him? You get this sense that people expected that if Jesus were to show up, there could be trouble. Right? You get the sense that Jerusalem is kind of anxious about the possibility that he's going to appear in the middle of this major festival and, and what ramifications that might have. So he does indeed go to Jerusalem. He goes to the festival of the booze. And from that point on, the rest of chapter seven and the first half of chapter eight is taken up with a series of discussions, a series of discourses about the identity of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the signs that Jesus does, how to interpret those, you know, what exactly is Jesus teaching? Um, and then there's that little interpolation that, that we noted, uh, the, the story of the woman caught in adultery brought, brought before Jesus. If you take that interpolation out, you can read the beginning of chapter seven seamlessly through to the end of chapter eight, and it's pretty much just one, one running continuous narrative. The interpolation isn't a bad thing. That, that's a great story, and it, it kind of makes sense right there. Um, but thinking about what happens in the text that we're going to look at today requires attending in some way to uh, the, the, all, everything that had happened prior to this going all the way back to the beginning of, chapter, beginning of chapter 7. Okay, so all of that is run up. All that's just um, where, where are we now and how do we get to where we are now. What I want to do now, you'll see on the outline that I've kind of broken this up into four parts. Uh, and each part takes a chunk of the text for today and boils it down to an essential question. So part one, the first chunk of text that we're going to look at, the essential question here, I think, is what does it mean to be free? What, are Jesus, what is Jesus arguing about with the people he's talking to? In part one, what he's arguing about is what does it mean to be free? In part two, what he's arguing about is who are the children of Abraham? In part three of today's text, the question that they're asking has to do with who has been born of God? What does it mean to be born of God? and who exactly has been born of God. And then finally, part four, the rubber hits the road. Who do you claim to be? What exactly are you saying? Because it sounds like this is where we kind of, uh, all the pigeons come home to roost and we get the conclusion of this particular discourse. So what I wanna do is I wanna just walk through these sections one at a time, highlight a couple of questions. Certainly we'll make opportunities for conversation as we walk through this. So if, you, if at some point you have a question or a concern or wanna bear down on a particular text, just throw up a flare and we'll stop and dig in for a minute. Okay? So here we go. Part one. First section. As he was saying these things, everything he'd said earlier in chapter eight, everything he said in chapter seven, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. That's important. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? Jesus answered them, very truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So a couple of things to note here. The focus of the conversation has shifted a little bit or the, the, the people with whom he's talking has shifted a little bit. He's gone from arguing with the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders 
to talking now to people who have said, I, I kind of like what this guy has to say. He's talking to those who have chosen in some way, shape or form to believe in him. So he's now dealing with a more friendly audience, one would think. But what does he do with that friendly audience? He pushes them, right? He challenges them. He tests the sincerity of their belief. Does anybody remember a time earlier in John's gospel when he does something similar? There's another very provocative moment earlier in John's gospel when the same kind of thing happens. Throwing the stone? Throwing the stone? Not so much throwing the stone at the adulteress. What I have in mind here is when does he challenge someone who has said that they believe in him for the sake of testing the sincerity of their faith? This kind of scene plays out earlier in John's gospel. Another famous, very famous uh, discourse in John. What do I have in mind? Please. Nicodemus. Nicodemus is conf uh, confused, but we never get the sense that Nicodemus quite comes to faith, right? Nicodemus is very intrigued. He's very interested and he's very confused. <laughs> the part I have in mind is uh, John chapter six. It's called the Bread of Life Discourse. It's right after John's presentation of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus tries to get away from the crowds. He goes to the opposite side of the lake. The crowds follow him around and they, they go to him uh, the, the following day and he sees them coming and he knows what they want. And he says, you're looking for me not because of the words that I speak, but because I fed you yesterday. <laughs> And this is a friendly crowd, right? I mean, these are people who ostensibly are now following him. So what he does is he tests their faith. He pushes them. Uh, and, he, and he says to them something similar to what he says to the Samaritan woman at the well. He says to her, I will give you living water. He says to the people who follow him after the, after the feeding of the 5,000, I will give you living bread. In fact, I am the living bread. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And now they're confused. What does this man, what is he talking about? He's, he's bread that comes down from heaven? What does that mean? He says, the bread that I will give to you is my flesh. Now they're freaked out. What is that about? What are they, I mean, keep in mind, he's talking to Jews here, right? I mean, you don't, no, you don't, that's not even a joke, right? That's not funny. And then those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have life indeed. Well, now they're offended, right? By the end of chapter six, the crowds who had followed him around, the crowds who had said they believed in him um, and who wanted to, in some way, shape or form, make better sense for themselves of what, what it was he was claiming about himself and what, it, what he was claiming he could do for them. By the end of that chapter, most of them leave. So many of them leave that Jesus is kind of left with a small group of followers, his 12 disciples and maybe a few others. And he turns to them and he says, what about you, you gonna go too? And Peter at that point, John's version of Peter's confession, Lord, who are we supposed to go to? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus says, okay, let's go. So we've seen this kind of interaction between Jesus and the crowds before, and now we're seeing it here again in chapter eight. We've got a bunch of people who ostensibly believe in him in some way, shape or form. And the first thing that Jesus does is he tests the sincerity of their faith. Why do you think he might do that? What would the value of that be? I think what he's doing is he wants to make sure that they understand the nature of what it is he's asking of them, right? They have an idea in their head about who they think he is. They have an idea in their head about what they think he can do for them 
They have defined their belief not in terms of him, but they have defined their belief in him in terms of themselves. I want you to do this. I need you to do this for me. I would like to feel this way about myself or about God or about the world or whatever. So I'm willing to believe you because I think you can give that to me. I can't give it to myself. I need something outside of myself. But I think, I think you might have what I'm looking for. And Jesus is basically saying to them, you're still looking for the wrong thing. Because you're defining your belief in me in terms of yourself and not defining your belief in me in terms of me. So for Jesus, the buck stops there. He pushes them because I think he wants to clarify for them the nature of what it is he's asking them. He doesn't want them to come to him with a set of preconceived notions about who they think he is or what they think he can offer. He wants them to receive what he has for them, which is life. And they're not going to get that life if they try and crowd that gift out with expectations and presuppositions and assumptions that they already have themselves. Some of you have probably heard the, uh, the, the, the parable that's sometimes told in uh, Zen Buddhism about the student who goes to the Zen master and they're sitting there having tea with one another and the student says, I really want to be your teacher. Really, I'd, I'd, I'd love to learn from you. I'd lo I'd love, I've studied and I've read and I've done this and I've done that. And I, want to be your, I want to be your teacher. And the Zen master takes two cups and he you know, pours some tea in one and then he pours some tea in the other one and he keeps pouring and he keeps pouring and he keeps, and the student's talking and he keeps pouring and, he, and this, the cup's overflowing, right? And pretty soon the student notices, his master, stop, the cup is full. And the master, of course, says, well, so are you. If you're going to be my student, you need to empty your cup. Jesus is in some respects saying the same thing to the crowds and to the people who want to call themselves his followers. Don't come to me with a full cup, thinking that what I'm going to do is just ratify your assumptions. You need to empty your cup and hear the words that I'm speaking. So he's pushing. And he's pushing here precisely because of this question of life and this question of freedom. He wants them to experience true freedom. He wants them to experience real life. And he knows that the only way that they can get that is if they recognize who he is based on what it is that he himself has to say about himself and about his father rather than what they want to hear him say. This is kind of brought home for us in um, this, this last little verse here. Well, not last little verse, but uh, verse 35. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. Now, son language in John is very important. Who is the principal image of the son in John's gospel? Jesus himself. I mean, who is Jesus always referring to? His father. My father has sent me. The works I do are not my works. They are my father's works. The words you hear me speak are not my words. They're my father's words. I do everything the father shows me. The father has showed me everything. Uh, so being a son, being a member of the household, and suggesting to them that they are also invited to be members of God's household is very much uh, the heart of what Jesus is, is, is proclaiming. That's his message. God is inviting you into the same kind of relationship that I share with the Father, and I'm the one who can give you that relationship. Our relationship to the Father is through Christ. It's not as if you know, we're Jesus' brother or something, right? We're not all incarnate word. <laughs> Jesus is the one through whom we experience that relationship. But the nature of the relationship into which God invites us is the same kind of relationship of intimacy that Jesus himself enjoys with the one he calls his father. So the household language is important here. And it's very much wrapped up with the freedom language and the life language and all the other issues that are kind of surfaced here. The question of truth, knowing the truth, 
all of that. And again, all of this centers on the person of Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who can give them truth. Jesus is the one who can give them life. And Jesus is himself the way that they go to the Father, the way that they enter into the household of God. Now that last little bit that I just did should sound familiar. There should be a bell ringing in the back of your head. What did I just do? What did I just refer to there? Howard, I saw you shaking your head. There it is. Later on in John's gospel, Jesus himself says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. That's a good, this is a good example of a kind of a restatement of that, of that particular uh, of that particular passage. Jesus is saying the same thing here that he says in John 14. Thoughts or questions about part one, the whole question of freedom? So what do you think it means to be free relative to what Jesus is saying right here? How do you, how do you see freedom being understood? How do you see freedom being described? How do you see freedom being um, offered? Free from sin, yes, okay, excellent. Um, freedom from, and not only freedom from something, but freedom for something, yeah. Free to do something, not just free not to do something. There's a, there's a sense of negative freedom. You are, not, you are no longer constrained, but you are actually free now to enjoy the benefits of inheritance, the benefits of being a member of the household of God. And think about all the things that we associate with being a member of a household, right? You, you've got a sense of connection, a sense of community, a sense of identity, a sense of vocation. Uh, all of those things shape and guide and structure the person's life. Right? The, the, probably the most famous story that Jesus tells in this regard is the one that I've listed here, uh, Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. That's a story about the household, right? The story about the household of God. And it's a story about what life in the household looks like when you stay in the household Certain things accrue, certain benefits follow. When you leave the household, certain things happen. <laughs> okay, other thoughts about part one? So good comment. Your comment takes us exactly to where we're going next. The comment was um, how, how challenging this must have been to those who were hearing Jesus speak because these are faithful Jewish people, right? These are members of the covenant household of God. They would have thought of themselves in those terms. To what degree is Jesus asking them to set all that aside, right? Is, is, are, are the words of Jesus a challenge for them because he's basically asking them to set aside their sense of covenant identity, their sense of connection to being members of the household of Abraham and all of that stuff. That is exactly where the conversation goes. Next. So your question has taken us immediately to part two. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> Let's go ahead and jump in. Jesus continues. I'm going to back up to 34 just so there's a sense of continuity here. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Part two. I know that you are descendants of Abraham. 
Yet you look for an opportunity to kill me, because there is no place for you in my word. I declare what I have seen in the Father's presence. As for you, you should do what you have heard from the Father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I have heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are indeed doing what your father does. So the question of who the children of Abraham are, or maybe more to the point, the question of what it means to be a faithful child of Abraham becomes an imperative question at this point. Is Jesus asking them to set aside their sense of identification with Abraham and to set aside Moses and the law and the prophets and the covenant and David and the temple and all of that? Is Jesus basically saying to them, starting over, I've got something brand new for you and all that stuff that came before, never mind, we're done with that, reboot, completely new, completely new paradigm. I don't think he's doing that. I think he's rather doing something different. I think what he's actually saying is, Abraham, if you, if you were actually a child of Abraham, if you actually understood what it means to be a member of the covenant community, everything I'm saying to you would make perfect sense. The fact that you don't get me means that you didn't understand Abraham. The fact that you don't understand me means you don't really properly understand the law or the temple or David or the land or the rest of it. All of those, by kind of, identifying himself as the one who speaks for what it means to be a child of Abraham, Jesus is basically saying all that stuff that you associate with being a member of the covenant household of God, you need to interpret all of that through what I'm telling you, what I'm telling you about myself and what I'm telling you about what it means to live a faithful life. Because this is it, folks. What did Abraham do? Abraham did this. We're gonna to get to Abraham a little bit later in the chapter too. You're not doing that, he says. You wanna kill me. You're trying to and keep in mind, these are people who've said they believe in him, right? So Jesus has already kind of discerned an ulterior motive here. He's discerned that even though they're approaching him with at least ostensibly a certain measure of openness and a certain measure of acceptance, there's something else going on. And he's calling them out on that. He's saying, again, don't bring your assumptions about what it means to be a child of Abraham to this conversation, expecting that I'm going to conform to those expectations. I'm here to tell you what it means to be a child of Abraham. I'm here to tell you what it means to be a faithful member of the covenant community. I'm here to tell you what the temple is about, and what the law is about, and what everything is about. We see Jesus doing this consistently, not just in John, but in all the gospels. This drove people up the wall. This is one of the things that got him into trouble with people. He would consistently take some part of the faith and practice of the people of Israel, and he would redefine it in terms of himself. And that just, I mean, people just didn't know what to do with that. He does this very early in John's gospel uh, when he clears the temple. You remember that one of the things that's different about John's presentation of the clearing of the temple is that it happens at the beginning of the gospel rather than at the end, right? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it happens towards the end of the gospel after Jesus makes his final triumphal entry into Jerusalem in the week leading up to his arrest and his crucifixion. So the cl cleansing of the temple happens almost last. It's one of his last public acts of ministry. In John, it, it's one of the first things out of the gate. He goes and he clears the temple and the people are confronting him saying, what are you doing? By what, by what authority do you do this? And what does he say to them? Anybody remember? In John, how does he respond? Tear this temple down and in three days I will build it again. And they say, what are you talking about? You're crazy. 
And then the gospel writer says, but after he was raised from the dead, his disciples realized he was talking about the temple of his body. So John's account of the clearing of the temple involves Jesus taking the image and the meaning and the significance of the temple and drawing it into himself. He does something similar in the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When he gets into trouble with the Pharisees for healing on a Sabbath, he'll say to them things like, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Whoa. (laughs) He takes the meaning of the Sabbath, the sacred day consecrated by God himself, and he applies it to himself. Or when he reinterprets the law, right? You have heard it said, but I say to you. He reconfigures, he taught taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes, right? I, I can't remember if that's Matthew or Luke, but everybody's astonished at his teaching because when Jesus speaks to them, he doesn't speak to them and say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this and Rabbi so-and-so said that. It's a tricky question and we might think of it in this way or we might think of it in that way. Jesus just says to them, no, here's what that means. I'm telling you, this is how to interpret the law. You don't do that. (laughs) But he consistently would take elements of Jewish faith and practice and apply them to himself and tell those to whom he was speaking, you wanna understand temple? You want to understand law? You want to understand Sabbath? You want to understand Abraham? You want to understand being a faithful member of the covenant household of God? See me, because I got it. And I will help you sort all of that out. So I don't think that he's rejecting that. It's not that he's um, taking, it's not as if he's saying that Abraham is no longer important or the law is no longer important, none of that stuff. He is challenging them to rethink their assumptions about what all of those things mean. Because as he repeatedly says in John and in the synoptics, all those things point to me. Everything in Moses and the prophets, everything in the law, everything in the temple, all report to me. There's a story in Luke that makes this point. Um, After his resurrection, you remember the story that Jesus encounters two of his disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And what, what, what does the gospel or what does Luke say happens there? You know, they're, they're complaining, oh, we thought he was going to save us. And then Jesus says, how slow you are to understand the scriptures. And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, right? What does Luke say? He interpreted for them everything about himself written in the scriptures. Now, keep in mind, in the scriptures at that point did not include the New Testament, right? So he's working in the Old Testament, right? He's working with the, with the Hebrew scriptures at the time. So he's not referring to the letters of Paul and the letters of John and you know, the gospels about himself. He says, if you understand Isaiah, you'll understand who the Messiah is. And if you understand Moses, you'll understand who the Messiah is. And if you understand Amos and the Psalms and all the rest of it, you'll understand who the Messiah is. Same thing here. Reread the history of Israel in light of what you see God doing through me and the words I'm speaking to you and all of this will make sense. Paul does something very similar. I refer you here, this is the last bullet point on side one of the, of the outline. Uh, take a look at chapters three and four of Galatians sometime, and you will see Paul's conversation about what he calls the child of flesh and the child of promise. And he's referring there specifically to the two sons of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael, the child of the promise, Isaac, the child of the flesh, Ishmael, Paul is dealing with exactly the same question and exactly the same problem that Jesus is wrestling with here about what it means to be a child of Abraham. So we see this kind of running theme woven throughout the various writings of the New Testament. I just refer that to you for further further study. Questions about 
part two, before we press on. Boy, y'all are easy today. Chris told me to be ready for Christ. He said, boy, be ready. They'll, they'll, they'll get you. They'll come after you. I'm like, okay. You guys, are, you, you don't have to be nice. <laughs> oh, sorry. I must be preaching a part. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> let's hope so. Okay, part three. Question here. Who exactly has been born of God? And you can see that if we've already bumped into the question of what it means to be a child of Abraham, and if we bumped into the question of what it means to be a member of the covenant household of God, then what it means to be born of God is now an imperative issue. Right? So who has been born of God? They said to him, we are not illegitimate children. We have one father, God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now I am here. I did not come on my own, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot accept my word. You, these are, these are people who said they believed in him, you are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is from God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you were not from God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. So again, Jesus makes the point here that he himself is the condition for the acceptance of his teaching. In other words, what he's trying to encourage them to see is that all the questions they have about him do not turn on some other abstract question or some other propositional issue or some other, you know, whatever, concept. Don't come to me, he says, with an, with a, with an understanding of truth or goodness or beauty or God or whatever and try and apply that to me as a way of making sense of who I am. I'm the one, I'm the, I'm the source, right? Redefine your understanding of truth and beauty and goodness and all the rest of it in light of me, not the other way around. He says, when you do it the other way around, you're gonna be misled. You'll be back into bondage because whatever image you have of truth and goodness and all the rest of it is not gonna be right because it's not found in me. If you come up with it on your own, you'll basically be doing the same thing that the one he calls the devil does. You'll be speaking out, of, speaking out of your own nature. And when you speak out of your own nature and when your own nature is not aligned with what I'm telling you, when your nature is not aligned with the new birth that God gives to you, good luck with that. So he's really pushing the question here, right? I mean, he's, really, he's not only pushing them to clarify the extent to which they are sincere when they say they believe, he's pushing them to clarify exactly what they think they mean when they say they believe. What exactly do you believe and why do you believe it? Do you believe in it because of some agenda you're bringing to this conversation that you've constructed apart from me or do you believe it because of me? Because I am the way and the truth and the life. And if your understanding of all the rest of it is grounded in me, good to go. But if your understanding of all the rest of it is grounded in something else, you're never gonna understand me. 
It will always be you trying to make me into something other than what I'm telling you I am. So, I've already alluded to uh, the extent to which we kind of, this, this anticipates uh, what he says in chapter 14, the part that Howard referred to earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, it's, it's interesting to note here, and I think this kind of bears on the question that uh, we discussed at the very beginning that was submitted via email about the relationship between God's judgment and God's mercy. Jesus is actually speaking to them here a word of mercy, right? I, I came that you might have life. I came that you might have freedom. I came in order to set you free. This is the same thing he says to Nicodemus. Why did God send me? God did not send me to condemn the world. God did not send me to judge the world. God sent me to save the world. The fact that you receive that word as a word of judgment is itself an indicator of the problem. <laughs> if you receive the word that I offer to you as a word of mercy, if you understand that believing in me is the, the path to faith and the path to life, then you will receive my words as, as a word of mercy. If you don't see that I am the way, the truth, and the life, you will, you will hear this as a word of judgment because, in fact, that's what it will be. Not because the message has changed, but because of the way you receive the message. So what this suggests is that God's judgment is a mercy and God's mercy brings with it judgment. For, for us, mercy and judgment are polar opposites. You have judgment over here and it's harsh and unyielding and bad. We have mercy over here and it's much more soft and accepting and good. Jesus is telling us right here, mercy and judgment come together. When God comes to us and speaks a word of mercy, it's a judgment against the ways in which we tend to misconceive our relationship with God. All the things that we thought we knew about ourselves and about God and about the world and about being faithful and all that, all of that is called into question because we immediately have to make sure that our faith is grounded in God and what God is doing and not in ourselves. So there is in the word of mercy, a word of judgment, but that word of judgment is offered as a word of mercy. Come to me, have faith in me, believe in me, find your life in me and you will be free indeed and you will have life indeed. That is the offer. Don't try that other stuff because that other stuff is not the, not the road to freedom, not the road to life, it's right here. So relationship between mercy and judgment, a little more subtle than I think we, we tend to think about it. Um, and then finally, our words and our actions uh, reveal our nature. Um, you'll remember here, um, let's see, where was I going with that? It was a good idea. <laughs> Let me just look up Matthew 12. I've got a reference here to Matthew 12. And what I've done is just forget exactly what that's about. And as soon as I look at it, Matthew 12, 34, how can you speak good things? There it is. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person brings good things out of a good treasure. The evil person brings evil things out of an evil treasure. I tell you on the day of judgment, you will have to give account for every careless word you utter. Okay. Yeah. The point there uh, is that Jesus is saying to them, if you really, this is what he's doing with them, right? In the, in the midst of this conversation. If you want to test the sincerity of your commitment to me, if you want to test the sincerity of your belief in me, look at your life. What's happening in your life? Do you find yourself bringing forth the kind of freedom and the kind of life, what Paul calls the fruits of the spirit? Do you see evidence of that in your, if you're doing that, you can be sure that you've been born of God and that you are in me. This is, I'm riffing a little bit on what Paul does in Galatians here, Galatians chapter five. 
uh, when he talks about the fruits of the Spirit. Is that five or six? One of those. Read, 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 read Galatians. <laughs> um, Paul says, look at your life, and if you see these behaviors, you've been born of God. And if you see these behaviors, you have not. So look at the evidence around you based on how you find yourself responding, how you find yourself engaging with others, how you find yourself investing yourself in your relationships. That will tell you something about God's activity in your life. And if you find there that the word of God's mercy is something of a judgment on what you see, then that's an invitation to repent and return to the Lord. Okay? I want to push on so we get through part four here, and then we'll um, stop and kind of ask, general, ask some general questions. Part four. So we've talked about members of the family of God. We've talked about being born of God. We've talked about the question of freedom. Now the rubber hits the road. Part four. Who is it you claim to be? Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever keeps my word will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say whoever keeps my word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets also died. Who do you claim to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me. He of whom you say he is our God, though you do not know him. But I know him. If I would say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your ancestor Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The heart of the confusion that is manifest throughout this whole conversation, I think, is expressed in verses 56 and 57. There's a really subtle shift that happens here that, that reveals the nature of the problem. Jesus says to them, Your ancestor Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? What happened there? They make a fundamental error in, what, in interpreting what it was Jesus said to them. What's the, what's the mistake they make? Is the mistake that they make that Jesus is mortal? That's, that, is, that is a mistake? I'm looking for something a little different here. Just within the context of what does Jesus explicitly say? Your ancestor Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. They respond, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? What's the, what's the, what's the switch that's been made? They're not believing him. They're definitely not believing him. They have inverted the order in which Jesus presents them with the problem, right? Jesus, Jesus does not say, I have seen Abraham. What does Jesus say? Abraham saw me. And what do they say in response? You've seen Abraham? No, Jesus said, you didn't hear me. <laughs> Abraham saw me. What he's doing is he's commending Abraham to them as an example of faithfulness. Now, the, the question still remains, when did Abraham see, see you? 
I mean, they could have asked that question. If they had asked that question, that would have been a much more interesting and a much more productive question. They asked the wrong question. They said, you have seen Abraham? No, no, Jesus said, you you misheard me. Abraham saw me. When? Abraham saw me when he received the promise of God and rejoiced. The language here that Jesus uses is very explicit. He saw it and was glad. Some biblical scholars have suggested that what that is is a reference to Genesis 17, 17, which is the conversation that God is having with Abraham when God renames Abram into Abraham and he renames Sarai into Sarah and he says to Abraham, you are going to have a son. Now, if you look in our translation, what it says is in verse 17, Abraham laughed. If you look in some of the Jewish translations, including the Jewish translations that were around in the time of Jesus, it says Abraham rejoiced. So what does it mean to say that Abraham saw Jesus? He saw the promise of God, received it, and gave thanks. He fell on his face and rejoiced. He was so glad. Abraham got it, said Jesus. And in getting it, in seeing and recognizing the promise of God and being faithful in his response to God, Abraham saw me. You do not see me. But they're confused. They're still thinking in earthly terms. So that the difference between verse 56 and 57 is in some respects an encapsulation of the difference between what it means to be born of flesh and what it means to be born of spirit. Jesus is speaking in terms of seeing in the spirit, as it were. They're they're only able to think of seeing in the flesh. You're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? No, wrong kind of seeing entirely. You have totally missed the point. (laughs) So there there it is. I mean, that's kind of the problem. Thinking in terms of the flesh, thinking in terms of the spirit. This helps connect this conversation to the the discussion that Jesus has with Nicodemus in chapter three. Because what are they talking about there? The exact same thing. The one who was born of flesh only understands the flesh. The one who was born of spirit understands things of the spirit. Two different ways of life, two different ways of seeing, two different ways of knowing, two different ways of understanding. And then the very provocative end, he kind of, he just lays it all out there. All right, fine. You're apparently not getting it. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. His intimacy with the Father is so profound that he's able to identify himself with the Father. Now they're just angry. <laughs> Howard. I am Yahweh. I'm saying I am God. In that same context, because he's also saying it's almost like Abraham saw me because I'm God. And then here at the end, he's saying, The question was, um, is, is Jesus speaking here, the name by which God identifies himself most paradigmatically in the, books, in the book of Exodus? When Moses says, I go to Israel and I tell them that God has sent me and they say, who are you talking about? What am I to say to them? And God says, I am. I am who I will be or I am the one who is or however we variously translate that. Is that, is that the intent that Jesus has here to identify himself in, in precisely that way? I think it is certainly right to say that Jesus is identifying himself with that God. I don't think Jesus is not saying, I am the Father. Right? He says, I and the Father are one. And when you see me, you see the Father. But I'm not the Father. The Father sends me. And I'm obedient to the Father. This is one of the things that 
you know, requires kind of a rethinking on the part of faithful members of the house of Israel with the advent of the Messiah. When the Messiah appears, they have to rethink monotheism. Not that they're all of a sudden called to be tritheists, but now they have to figure out what monotheism looks like, what it means to confess one God who has some form of distinction going on here as well. So it's the identification between Jesus and the Father that I think is being articulated here. Not so much, I am the Father. Please. In the beginning was the Word. Yes. Uh, yes, I, the, the, the comment was that um, this in some respects harkens back to the very beginning of John's gospel, John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was what? God. <laughs> the word was in the beginning with God and through him all things were created. Um, I, I, would, I wouldn't say that all things were in the word because that suggests that the father and the son and the spirit all somehow subsist in something bigger that is the word. The word is itself one of those subsistence. In other words, the word is identified as one of those distinctions within God. That, and that distinction becomes the one that we have seen God, right? Because the word has now done what? The word has become flesh. And that's what, that's what Jesus is basically saying. Yes. There you go. There you go. So it is, it is the close identification by way of his relationship to the Father that they recognize as being a claim to a divinity. But what he's not doing is he's not saying that you should be thinking of me as God in toto, as it were. I and the Father are one, but there is, there is another. And then two, I mean, the other, think back to chapter six and earlier in John, who is the one who is coming? Think ahead to chapter 14. There's gonna be another one too, right? <laughs> what, there's three? Yes. <laughs> I will ask the Father and the Father will do what? send the spirit. I will not leave you abandoned. I am coming to you. I'm looking ahead to chapter 14 here. So it is through the spirit that the disciples will be brought into the relationship with Jesus after he goes to the father and will continue to enjoy unbroken communion with him. And by virtue of their communion with him through the spirit, they will enjoy communion with the father. Okay, how are we doing? Wrapping up. Um, those questions at the bottom, questions for reflection, are really intended to help you try and figure out, think about, reflect on how this story helps or invites you to consider your relationship to the Father through Jesus and the Spirit. Because, as I mentioned at the very outset, the gospel writer's whole purpose is to say, look, this guy who I'm telling you about, this guy is alive. He's alive today. And the whole purpose of my gospel is to bring you into a relationship with this guy today not just as someone who lived a long time ago, but someone who is confronting you today with these same questions. And why does he confront you? Because he offers you the same gift of life and the same gift of freedom and the same gift of truth that you're gonna hear me talk about in the gospel. So all of those, all of the gifts, all of the opportunities, um, all the words of mercy and of grace that Jesus speaks are words that Jesus consistently speaks to us every day. And the, the challenge that we face in the life of faith is to constantly remind ourselves to keep our focus on him and to allow him to be 
the way, the life, and the truth through which we understand what it means to be faithful people. When we do that, then we live into the freedom that he offers. We live into the life that, that he gives to us. It's when we start to misalign our understanding of what life and freedom and truth and all the rest of it look like, that's when it gets a little wonky. Uh, so the invitation is still there uh, and the opportunity is still there. Any closing questions or thoughts? Please. Yeah, yeah. And you know Yeah. Yeah, the question is, 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 is the logic that Jesus is using something of a circular argument? How do you know my words are true? Well, because I'm telling you. Well, how do we know that you're true? Because of the words I'm telling you. I think that there's actually something important about that. There's only one, there's only one context in which that kind of circularity is justified. The only time that's justified is when you're talking to God. <laughs> if you're talking to anybody else, a circular argument's no good. But when you're talking to God, it's all about a circular argument because God is who God is and we are who we are because of who God is and everything that God speaks is whatever God says, <laughs> right? So the, so the circularity, I think, helps us recognize the nature of the claim that Jesus is making He's putting before them a, a choice between basically idolatry and faithfulness. And, and the circularity, which I think you've rightly identified, is itself an indicator of exactly the nature of the choice he's asking them to make. Yeah, you're right, he says. They're, because the, where else are you going to go? There's nowhere else to prove this argument, as it were, because the buck stops here. The buck stops with me. Oh, and it's not just the Jews who have difficulty. Yeah. It, it, does the circularity present us with a problem? The circularity, we experience it as circularity precisely because we want another way, right? We want another path to God other than God himself. We would rather come to God by way of our understanding of truth or our understanding of goodness or our understanding of whatever, our understanding of love or justice or life or freedom, you name it. We will try to get to God some other way precisely so that we are not beholden to God. But God, God says it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Life is in me. Truth is in me. You try to get any of that stuff any other way, and you're not going to get it. And I want you to have life. So come to me. Right? That's why it's about trust. Right? This is why Jesus pushes the sincerity of belief. Um, okay. Happy to stick around and talk a little bit more if you'd like. Thank you very much for being here. Let me say a quick prayer before we go out. Lord God, we give you thanks for this time. We give you thanks for the truth of your word revealed to us in Jesus Christ and through your Holy Spirit. We ask now as we go out into the world that you would continue to inspire us, guide us, support us, help us to be your hands and feet in the world and to bear witness to your truth, your life, uh, and your way. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Remember, no class until January 10th. See you all later.